received a letter recently from a man in, in prison, and uh, he was writing about the series of messages on prayer that we've been studying for quite some time here on Wednesday night. And he said, Pastor Lamb, I didn't know that the Bible had so much to say about prayer. Well, it's a book of prayer, isn't it? A handbook of prayer. And it just as all the Bible is the story of Jesus Christ, all the Bible tells us about our worship and praise of him. And Psalm 34 is just that. It is a psalm of praise and prayer. Let's turn there together, Psalm 34. As you turn there, you'll notice the superscription tells us a psalm of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he departed. So with that in mind, after that embarrassing situation in David's life, he, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. We see him praying, seeking the Lord. That's what we do when we go before the Lord in prayer. They looked unto him and were lightened, and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord, in verse 7, ought to be a verse of encouragement to you tonight. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. We often say a hedge of protection, a wall of fire, the angel of the Lord, all of those are synonyms for the protection that the child of God enjoys. And the Lord himself counts around about us. What is there to fear? What is there to alarm us? And he delivers us, not just once, but over and over and over again. And George Mueller, that godly man who started the orphanages and fed and clothed thousands of orphans uh, during his lifetime, said, The Lord does not deliver us out of 999 troubles. He delivers us out of 1,000 troubles. Or he said, 999 plus one. He delivers us out of them all. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. Oh, fear the Lord. Do you see this compelling uh, desire of David to draw others into the same relationship with the Lord that he has experienced and that he has seen him to be. Oh, fear the Lord, ye his saints. This is a reverential awe of him. For there is no want to them that fear him. What a statement. Here's a man that's been running for his life, living in caves. But obviously he's speaking about uh, desires fulfilled that, 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 that you cannot measure. Uh, the, the, the blessing of the Lord there's no want, there's no spiritual desire that cannot be satisfied by the Lord. In fact, I would tell you all the things that people are looking for, searching for, they're all found in Jesus Christ. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord, you see this ongoing searching, seeking, it's a, it's a compelling, lifelong voyage, journey that we're on. Seeking the Lord shall not want any good thing. What a statement. We see over and over again amazing statements from David here. Come, ye children, hearken unto me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. 
Someone may be saying tonight, what is the fear of the Lord? David said, follow me, I'll teach you. What man is he that desireth life and loveth many days that he may see good? Keep thy tongue from evil. So part of the fear of the Lord is to guard your tongue. We're so loose with our tongue, criticizing people, uh, saying things, exaggerating, putting ourselves in a good light, exalting ourselves, boasting of things that beyond measure, using our tongue for all manner of things except what it was given for, to praise the Lord and to tell of his good mercy and, and teach other the things of the Lord. So isn't it interesting here that he begins in the fear of the Lord with our tongue. And when you read of Isaiah's call of consecration, it began with the purifying of the lips uh, and the coal from off the altar. Then he was ready to serve the Lord once he got his mouth straightened out and his tongue where it should be. Keep thy tongue from evil and thy lips from speaking guile. That guile means deceiving or feigned or false things uh, with, with the, the motive of entrapping or tricking. It also mean a violation of confidence. So it just covers it all, doesn't it? Just be careful, little tongue, what you say, as we could say. Keep thy tongue from evil and thy lips from speaking out. Depart from evil. We're, we're having here a Bible definition of what the fear of the Lord is. There's no fear of the Lord without laying off sin, departing from sin. When you see the Lord as he is, what did Isaiah say? Let's go back to Isaiah. Oh, when he saw him high and lifted up, what did he say? Oh, I'm, I'm undone. I'm a mess. I, can't, I don't talk right. I'm, I dwell with among people of unclean lips. I need a, a work of grace. So the closer you get to the Lord, the more your sin stares you. And you never get to the place. Now, some have talked to me and say, Pastor, I, I, I'm seeking after the Lord. I'm, I'm seeking his face. And I still, there's this angst. And I want you to know there always will be. The closer you get to the Lord, you, the more you see him high and lifted up, the, the lower you become and the more despicable you come in the light of the glory of his grace. So that's, a, that's the way it should be. If you ever get to the point that you think you're clear sailing and that you've arrived spiritually, you're about to have a fall so great that it'll be a horrible, horrible fall. Depart from evil. Do good. So as we're departing from evil, negatively, positively, we're seeking to do good. Seek peace. What a, what a statement that is. I see people all the time, they're just fighting their own private war with themselves, the world, everybody they come across. Seek peace and pursue it. If you're pursuing something, you're searching for it. You're ransacking for it. The eyes of the Lord. Again, we're talking about the fear of the Lord. We, we realize that whatever I say or do, he's watching that has a negative connotation. How could we do something that we'd be more embarrassed that our, our, our mate or one of our church members would see than we would be feel embarrassed at the Lord who does see the, all things? The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. And that ought to cause us to consider our ways. But the positive side to it is what? He's watching us to see if we're going to pray. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his ears are open unto their prayer. What an invitation on a prayer meeting night. God's ears are open. We could put a sign up, and I'm not being sacrilegious at all. Open for business. My house shall be called a house of prayer. Bring it on. Bring the request. Bring the, there's nothing too big to ask the Lord tonight. What is it that you need to ask Him? What sin do you need to be cleansed from? What need do you need to have, be, have met? Bring it to the mercy seat. What does the Scripture say? His ears are open unto their cry. Now, 
A cry means a heartfelt plea. It's not just, well, Lord, maybe some people are so glib and so neutral about their praying. You know, you wouldn't answer their request, let alone the Lord answering it. If someone came to you and said, if you want to, I don't really care, but maybe would you like to? They were so ambivalent about it. Would you be excited about anything they had to say? His ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Now, the eyes of the Lord are always denote his blessing and his uh, graciousness to us. The face of the Lord has to do, in the scripture, has the connotation of judgment. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And that word do means practice, the lifestyle of it. They're just, that's how they live life. And we know we're all sinners, even saved by grace, but those who do evil, that's what they're about. That's their way of life. To cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry. You see that again? In case we missed it the first time, he comes back and says, with the righteous cry and the Lord hear it. Don't you love that correlation? His ears are open to their cry. His eyes are upon the righteous. The righteous cry. What is the equation here? You cry, he hears. You cry, he hears. And then delivers them out of some of their troubles. Okay, thank you, Berean Christians. He delivers them out of all of their troubles. The Lord is near. He's not to them that are of a broken heart. These are qualifying. This is not just name it, claim it, live any way you want to, and you'll get everything from heaven that you want. Those who have a broken heart, let me ask you, are you broken over your sin? He's, he's near to those who have a broken heart and saveth such as of a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Some people seem to forget that that verse is in the Bible. But may I tell you tonight, your life will be filled with afflictions. If you'll settle that and expect it, then you can live. That's not being negative. That's just knowing what the Scripture has to say. The afflictions are not the point. Are the number of them. The point is the next part of that verse that follows the conjunction, but the Lord, he's told us this two or three times already, the Lord delivereth him out of them. How many? All, over and over again, all. He keepeth all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and they that hate the righteous shall be desolate. The Lord redeemeth the soul of his servants, and none of them, some of them, no, none of them that trust in him shall be desolate or without hope. Well, this chapter is filled with prayer promises, filled with instruction, for the child of God. But as always, we must study Scripture in context. Not every psalm tells us the context that it was of the occasion that it was written in, but this one does. We're not going to turn back to 1 Samuel 21, but that is the chapter that gives the background, and a good homework assignment would be to go home and read again 1 Samuel 21. The picture is not a flattering one for David. David is one of our heroes in the Bible, but like all humans, he has good days and bad days. And 1 Samuel 21 is not the best chapter in the biography of David's life. He is in exile from King Saul's court. He has transitioned from the court favorite to public enemy number one. And I want you to know that uh, things can change for any of us in a second, can't they? You may be flying high today, My grandmother O'Neill used to say, no bird flies so high that it doesn't have to light at some point. 
We see soaring stars, soaring birds, going to the heights, but you'll have to come down one of these days. David would have been called to court. He was the singer. He was on the top charts. His songs were on the top. The women were singing to him in the streets, singing his praises. And now he's in exile living in caves. From the king's palace to caves. He's a fugitive. Nowhere to turn. He didn't ask to be brought to court. He didn't ask for the fame. But it was allowed to him. And his life of peacefulness as a shepherd, he would just, just assume stayed on the back 40 with his daddy's sheep. But all of that's long ago, and he's far away from the comforts of his daddy's farm. He's a man after God's own heart. Don't ever forget that when you're studying David's life. It doesn't excuse one moment of sin, but it does tell us that on David's worst day, still his heart was always turned back to the Lord, and he was a repenter. He, he, he proved that he was genuinely a child of God because he always came back to the Lord in heartfelt, genuine repentance. But the note here before this beautiful psalm reminds us that were it not for the providential care of a sovereign God, even the most favored among us would make stupid decisions. And even when they do, God is there to guide them out. Are you interested in hearing about David's experience tonight? I think we could get a lot from it, don't you? David's greatest test of faith was not when he came to Goliath and killed him and stood before the giant breathing out threatenings that was not his greatest test we often look longingly at that at position and status and favor and so i wish i was at the the royal court i wish i was on the president's cabinet i wish i had some privileged place and status and think that's where i want to be Uh, fame like fog quickly vanishes one is written when david is banished from court the pomp and the pleasure of being treated like royalty to the place of being hunted like an animal. That's a far cry, isn't it? He suffered greatly. How quickly our circumstances can change. From abounding to abasing. The Apostle Paul knew that. He said, I can abase and I can abound. But the God of the palace is also the God of the desert place, isn't he? Has God changed in David's life or has David's circumstances changed? You see, when you base your feelings or your life on circumstances, there'll be a whole new set of them tomorrow. And the day after that, a whole other set of them. Circumstances are just that. Those things that happen. God doesn't change, though. Aren't you glad that I change not? I am the Lord. I change not. He who has led will lead. The Lord is still our shepherd, isn't it? He has been our shepherd. He is still our shepherd. I shall not walk. And so even when it doesn't seem like anyone is out there who cares and everybody's hunting us down, there's a God in heaven who does. Now, King Saul's plan was to murder David and to get him out of his his life and out of his uh, threat. And David was really no threat to Saul. God was his threat. You see, he he never figured it out. He always thought people were his problems when his problem was himself and his lack of true repentance towards God. Some people just need to come before the Lord and repent and beg for His mercy. And then you'd find your relationships with other people would fall into place. And you'd begin to go to them and make things right. But some people just fight people all the time as if they're the enemy. The enemy is within. And so Saul never learned that. David, in his time of greatest need, turns, though, from trusting the Lord implicitly. Up to this time, David has handled it with class. 
He has, and I, that may not be the best word, with grace is probably a better word. He never got bitter at, something, at Saul. He realized God was in control. He, he lived in caves. He did whatever he could to survive and, and probably wrote some of his sweetest psalms during this period of time. But on this day, like some of our days, David wasn't thinking straight. And he turns from trusting the Lord implicitly and, and he turns from that into scheming. Oh, beware when you come up with a scheme. Scheming is different from planning. Planning is praying and saying, Lord, this seems like a logical way to go. Help me and lead me and guide me. If this is not right, close these doors and, and change these plans. Scheming is I'm going to do this and I'm going to move this person. I'm going to work this angle and with whether the Lord's in it or not. In fact, scheming is not praying at all. I'm going to do this. Whether And you don't even think about it. You don't want to pray because you're afraid God's saying, no, you're not going to do that. The stupid thing is God's going to intervene anyway, isn't he? How do we think we can go ahead and buy a ticket to Tarshish and see what happens? Go ahead. We think I, we can circumvent the Lord and go behind his back and, and work him. How silly we are. But we all do that. We leave faith and we go to scheming and we get our scheme. And you know what? Schemes always look great on paper. It seems logical in our mind. But can I give you a verse? There's a way that seemeth right to a man but the end always at every decision fast forward to the end where is it going to lead what's the end result well what a foolish thing to do when we stop trusting the lord and start scheming and begin to leaning on our own understanding this is exactly what david is doing in first samuel 21 our hearts are desperately wicked who can trust them when you read first samuel 21 it's not a very pretty sight i warn you it's one of the most pitiful days in David's life. Instead of waiting on the Lord, instead of seeking his will, David begins to scheme away out of his problems. I know what David's thinking. He's tired. He's tired of being hunted like an animal. He'd just rather give it all up. I don't want to be king. I didn't ask to be king, but you know what? God had called him. When God has called you to salvation with a gospel call, you never say, I didn't expect all these troubles. I don't want to suffer as a Christian. And that's the way we get on those pity parties sometimes. Or God calls you to, to, to service, to preach, or to be a missionary, or a teacher, or some full-time position, or whatever. Call to be a parent or a husband on a dark day. I didn't ask for all this. God's call is that without repentance. It's not about the call. It's about you doing what God's told you to do no matter what you feel like. I didn't ask for all this. Well, nobody did. Nobody gets to order their lives. There's a God in heaven who's ordering your life. Your job and my job is to submit. Faith is living without scheming. Here David changes his behavior. You know what he acts like? He acts like an insane person before Abimelech. He, the, the, Abimelech is the priest, and the, the servants of King Achish are present, and they could turn him over to Saul. You see, David knows that the, the priest is there, but Saul's cohorts are there all at this meeting and so they said there, there was david i want you to get the picture this young strapping man young man head and shoulders above the rest auburn reddish hair and beard a dazzling handsome young man and you know what he does he drools spittle all over his beard and all of himself and starts acting like an insane person feigning insanity he puts on a royal show.
before the priest, the high priest, and Saul's men. The Bible says, the fear of man bringeth a snare. There in 1 Samuel 21, verse 12, he changed his behavior. In other words, he started acting like something that he wasn't. By the way, you always get in trouble when you start acting like something that you're not. And he acted insane, scratching the doors like an animal, clawing at the doors, just putting on a show. And they were scared of him. They began to look and say, what what's wrong with that guy? Like all of us would, we saw somebody acting like that. Satan's trap are, are usually not very obvious. He hides his snares. But we all see David here. And what did, what did he, it, 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 see what he did, and we think, what else could he do? There are a lot of people who defend David. In fact, some would say, well, that was a pretty smart idea. I mean, he was so good at it, they thought he was insane, and he spared his life. They, took, they, didn't, they, didn't, they, they probably took the word back to Saul. You don't have to worry about David. He did not fit to be king of anything. He couldn't, he couldn't rule the, you know, the animals in a jungle. He's, he's crazy. I mean, crazy. And uh, that's exactly what he wanted them to think. King Achish pretty much says that this guy's crazy. Why bother with him? I don't want anything to do with him. That's just, I mean, don't even consider him. He's, look at him. That's a pitiful place for the future king of Israel to be. Let me tell you, child of God, you, are, you who are royalty, you who are children of the king, when you act like something else other than a child of the king, it it looks just as bad as David acting this part. In fact, I've seen some of God's people act insane, haven't you? Do stupid things, way off base. You're saying, what were they thinking? They claim to know the Lord, and they're acting apart, far, far from what they should be. You and I, as saved children of the Lord, are to represent Him well in every circumstance. Oh, represent the Lord well. Put on the the doctrine of God and the garments of grace. Hold your head up high, not in pride, but as one redeemed by the grace of God. Move among your fellow men with grace and and, and poise. The child of God ought to be that way. We We don't have anything to be ashamed of, do we? Or nothing to hide, nothing to prove, nothing to lose. We're not trying to scheme and get impress people. If you're trying to impress people, you'll never impress everybody. You'll impress some. There's always going to be some people who live that way, trying to act a part, trying to, to, to get someone's attention in some way. Even in difficult situations like this, we're to trust the Lord to see us through. And let me ask you, if David, he comes to the, to the high priest's house or the location where they were, and he sees these enemies, and he thinks, I've got to do something I'm, I'm caught up with. Could God not have preserved him through all of that? If David had just acted as he should, greeted the high priest, and uh, remember in this psalm what he tells us, that the, the Lord encamps, the angel of the Lord does what? Encamps around the children of God. He should have known that. Do you know whatever you're called upon to do tomorrow or the next day, the angel of the Lord, the Lord's protection is round about you on every side? If we get in a hurry, if we get sloppy with our Christian lives and, with our, and, and, and glib with our testimony and let things slide as we all can do on any day, if we forget whose we are, please don't ever forget whose you are. My daddy, a poor, poor man, 
but it was an honest man, and I remember him telling me at one time, this was years and years, I was a little bit boy, that he could go into a bank and get a loan on his handshake. And he told me, son, and I'm sure some of your fathers told you the same thing, I have nothing to leave you but the lamb name. And I've done my best to live up to it, and I expect you to do it as well. I want you to know our great Savior, our elder brother, has left us his name. We're called Christians, aren't we? Followers of the Lord. Don't ever forget whose you are. I am proud to be my father's son, but I'm far, far prouder to be the child of the Lord. And he has high expectations of me. I'm his voice here on earth. I represent, he's gone above, but I'm still here. My father's long gone, but I still represent all the lamb enterprises. There's not any, uh, what I mean by that is who we are. I can go to certain places in Tuscaloosa County and Greene County. They say, you can, you're John, one of John Lamb's sons. And that means something. But far more important than that, I, you're, you're a Christian. You're a preacher. Often I'll be in a place and somebody say, you're a preacher, aren't you? I always wonder, I don't know if it's the get up I've got on or what. <laughs> But they all, it always tells on me. And uh, so, but that, you know, that's all right. Don't you ever forget whose you are, who we belong to. And we trust, when we trust in our own schemes before long, everything falls to pieces and we find ourselves in pitiful situations, just like David finds himself in. But David did learn to wait upon the Lord, and we, we have recorded here the truths that he learned. Aren't you glad that the Holy Spirit not only records that, that day in David's life, but he tells us what he learned from it. God is faithful in spite of our ridiculous behavior. And it is ridiculous what David did. Maybe understandable on the human level, but guess what? We don't live on a human level. We live on a heavenly level. Our citizenship is above. We live by the laws of heaven. We have a whole set, different set of standards by how we live. We don't live by what's logical. We live by what the Scripture says. And I'm not saying the Scriptures are illogical, but forgiving and trusting and proving the Lord may seem illogical to those who don't walk in faith, but that's how we live. His promises are true. Did you see, though, I want you to go back and meditate on Psalm 34. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. His ears are open to their cry. Over and over again, we have precious promises given to us here. His word is trustworthy. His way is best. We sing, oh, for grace to trust him more. First of all, I want us to notice here that David learned that praise is always appropriate. Sometimes we get in a bad situation. We may say, Lord, I'm fearful. I'm scared. I don't know how this is going to work out. It looks like this is going to be a bad day. But I praise you because you know the end of this day. You know what it's going to be like when I put my head on the pillow tonight. And you know what it's going to be like when I put my head on the pillow of the casket one day. You know all the way to my last day, and so I just trust it to you. For the child of God, it is a prescription for every situation we find ourselves in. Praise, praise him. In fact, the Bible says, in everything, do what? Give thanks. Lord, I thank you for this difficult situation. One of the staff members and I were praying yesterday about a pressing matter. And we said, it's always interesting. We had no solution of how it's going to be worked out was in exciting how the lord's going to answer this prayer and we're going to be able to look back and say that's how the lord did it well david said i will bless the lord at all times of course he had to learn that praise is appropriate it's always the right thing to do 
And as we get pressed into narrow places, difficult circumstances, we wonder, what do I do now? What do I do here? What do I do when the enemies are there and they could arrest me and take me to Saul immediately? We worship him. We enter into his gates with thanksgiving and to his courts with praise. That's exactly what we do. Why? Because it is he that has made us and not we ourselves. And we're his people, the sheep of his pasture. That's why we praise him and give thanks. How do we bless his name? We often see that through the scriptures. And I hear people say that, and, and, and I don't know if we really understand, how do we bless the Lord? The Bible tells us, bless the Lord, ye his saints. We think about the Lord blessing us, giving us something that only can come down from heaven. But how is it that we bless the Lord? We usually think of it coming from God instead of something coming down from, up, from us up to heaven. Well, we bless the Lord by our praise. Praise in the, in the Old Testament, in the ta- uh, tabernacle, in the temple, there was always a sweet-smelling incense burning on the altar. And it represented the praises and the prayers of God's people. Oh, the Lord loves the, the sweet scent, the incense of our praise. How do you bless God? You bless Him by prayer and praise. Praise from a worshipful heart of His believing children is a rare and precious commodity in heaven. Our prayers perfume the throne room of God. And do you know, I wonder, does, is heaven filled with our, the perfume of our praises tonight? They ought to come up from Glen Iris Baptist Church prayer meeting tonight. And these pray, the prayers and the praises that we've been lifting tonight will go right to the very throne room of God. That's why Jesus commended the woman who broke her alabaster box. It's always appropriate to lavish praise upon him. Do you know why? Because sometimes we don't feel like it. If you only praise him when you feel like it, there won't be much perfume in heaven from you. If you only... Thank the Lord when you feel thankful or when he's given you something tangible instead of thanking him for everything. You see, that's the luxury. That's the lavishness of praising him. That's blessing the Lord. Lord, I'm hurting now. I'm lonely. This is hard. But I praise you. I bless your name. That will change the circumstances. It may not change everything immediately, but it will change you. And we see here that we bless him with worship from the inner man. My, verse 2, my soul shall make her boast in the Lord. Praise is bragging on him, telling about him, singing to him, rejoicing in him, meditating upon him, thinking about him, rehearsing his glorious attributes, inviting others to join with us as we see there in verse 3. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. That's what we do when we lift our voices. You, when you're singing corporately, it encourages others to do the very same thing. Oh, we ought to just lift our voice in praise before the Lord. We're to worship alone in the secret place, and then we're to join with others. One of the glad, happy privileges of the children of God is corporate worship. There's nothing like it. My favorite music on earth is the congregational singing of God's people. If I could only choose one type of music, it would be the congregational singing of God's people. I would feast on that because, you know what, that's what I'm going to be feasting on to all of eternity. And, and I love other type of music. I love specials. I love all of that. But God's people, I don't care how humble the congregation is. I don't care how tuned the voices are. Give me some saints who know what they're singing about and to whom they're singing those who've experienced true amazing grace. They can sing amazing grace, can't they? And they can rattle windows and they can lift, the, lift it to the heavens because they've been redeemed by the grace of God. 
Let us exalt his name. How? Together. There is a togetherness that we must have in corporate worship that is lacking in any other kind of worship. Yes, you can worship alone, but there's a togetherness worship that that, that rattles the, the windows of heaven, and God loves it. My praise is desired if it is appropriate. Our praise is invited and desired. We bless the Lord by rehearsing what he has done. Oh, rehearse it. Now, if others don't want to hear it, you just rehearse it in your life. My wife and I will often sit and go back over the things the Lord has done for us. The answered prayers. Those times where we were in dire situations. Over and over and over again. I wouldn't begin to bore you with them tonight. It probably wouldn't mean very much to you at all. But I want you to know we've got Ebenezer's piled up. Stones of remembrance that heaven or hell cannot take away. Those things that the Lord has done for us. It's good to rehearse that. You ought to rehearse it to your children and to your children's children. Relive the mercies and the provisions of the Lord. What has the Lord done? For one thing, he's heard our prayers. Do you have answered prayers that you can talk about? I hope so. Every child of God ought to have. In verse 4, he said, I sought the Lord. Tell your testimony often. Put your grandchildren on your knee and tell them how you got saved. I sought the Lord and he heard me. I found the Lord. Verse 6, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him. Not only has he heard our prayers, but we worship him for his many deliverances after salvation. Oh, the times he's answered and brought us through. Verse 4, he delivered David from his fears. Aren't you glad to know that David had fears? You'd think of someone who could slay a giant who's the only one among the Israelites who had sense enough and, and, and bravery enough to do it to admit that he too had fears, there, there, there's no one who absolutely has no fears. And he says he, God delivered him from his fears. God has not given us the spirit of fear, has he? But of power and love and a sound mind. Verse 6, the Lord heard and saved him out of all of his troubles. So he delivered him out of his fears and out of his troubles. Again in verse 7, the angel of the Lord encampeth round about him that fear him and delivereth him. I love that deliverance. And David knew it because he was trying to deliver himself from King Achish, uh, and, uh, the, the high priest, and the men of Saul there. And he was trying to work a scheme to deliver himself, but the Lord delivered him. Oh, the glorious benefits of the saved, the children of God. He daily loadeth us with benefits. The righteous cry in verse 17, And the Lord heareth and delivereth them out of all their troubles. That word encampeth, when it says the angel of the Lord encampeth round about us, it means to stoop down, to bend down in kindness to a helpless one, to favor and to help them, to give a gift of graciousness, to pitch a tent around them during a siege. Satan told the Lord in Job chapter 1, Hast thou not made an hedge about him and about his house, his household, and all that he has on every side? Satan knows that there's the angel of the Lord and camps around about us. You've got him fenced in. I can't get to him. Praise the Lord. That's the only true thing the devil's ever said. And we learn from that testimony about he can't get to us. What a privilege we have as God's children. Some of you fear that. But we greater is he that is in us than, than he that is in the world. We're to praise him not only for his deliverances, but for his provisions. I want you to go home and look around, and I want you to know, you may think you brought all that to pass, but
But it got, it's God is the one who gives you the power to get wealth. And that house you enjoy and that car you drive, it was not your ingenuity that brought it to pass. It was not you who did that. It was God who allowed it. Don't, it you can never cease to thank him for what, how, how little or how much you have. God entrusted it to you. In verses 1 through 7, describe literal earthly protections and deliverances. But they also describe spiritual provisions from sin and from self. We would destroy ourselves. Don't you see people? Don't you work with people? Don't you know people who are destroying themselves? And we would do the same if it weren't for the Lord's provision that help us from the snares of the evil one. Don't you see people that just get ensnared over and over? They live ensnared. They're tangled up in the, in the, the, the webs and the snares of, of Satan all the time. They get from one thing into another. We who have believed on Christ for salvation have been saved from past dangers through many dangers, toils, and snares. I have already come. We, we are being saved from present ones. You don't even know all that the Lord delivered you out of today. Someone might have hit you on the way here and you didn't even know it. If, if, if the veil of the unseen were rolled back and you saw all that could have happened to you today, you'd be in a state of shock. And the present ones, and then we're kept from future judgment. We don't have to go to hell tonight. We've been saved from that awful condemnation. There's therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. And there won't be a condemnation. The greatest deliverance is not deliverance on 459 today or from a car, five-car pileup. Praise the Lord for being delivered from that. Or from cancer. Or from financial loss. Or from any number of things that we could list. The greatest deliverance is the deliverance from sin. The most marvelous rescue was from the power of sin and the punishment of hell. These verses are the testimony of a saved man. This poor man cried and he lifted me up. One who has experienced saving grace. All the world enjoys common grace. We have a glorious Father in heaven who shines sun and rain on It rained at your house and it rained at other people's houses too today. Their flowers got water. Their tomatoes got water too. They might not have praised Him for it. In fact, some of God's people might not have thanked Him for it. But the common blessings, the common grace. But there is a particular grace that comes from an effectual call from the eternal God of the ages. Come unto me. All you that labor, come, come, come. Like a magnet to the very throne of God, he draws his own. Oh, the, the saving grace of God. How strong that, that pull is. It pulls us to him. I sought the Lord. You know what he found out? Really, it wasn't he that was seeking the Lord. It seems like it on this side of it. But when you were saved, you found out the Lord was seeking you all the while. Now, I love the song, Hallelujah, I Found Him, you know. I, all my life long, I was panting for a drink from some cool spring. You might have been thirsty, but you really didn't know. And that's a wonderful, powerful, that's almost verbatim to the psalmist here. But the truth of the matter is, God sought you or you never would have sought him to start with. All that seek me will find me. That's a promise. And I would encourage anyone who's seeking tonight, you go on and seek the Lord, you'll find him. He wants you. Seek ye the Lord when? While he is near. 
He's, he's near at hand. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time. He's near you now. He's always near where His Word is being preached. Oh, I, if I was a sinner outside of, the, of grace, I would never miss a service. Do you know why? Because there's a particular blessing. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. If you're seeking the Lord, you get under the preaching of sound doctrine, and guess what? You'll be saved. I'll guarantee you that. If you have a pull in your heart, you're worried over your sin, you give yourself over to the preaching of the gospel, and you find a gospel preacher to sit under, the Holy Spirit will arrest you and save you. He is near you now. Turn to Him. Turn from sin and from self to Him and turn to Him in faith. Take Him at His word. No one was ever saved that didn't take Him at His word. We'll hear from time to time people in burning houses and there's a rescue people there and they tell them to jump, we'll save you. Or you just do this one simple thing and we'll catch you. And they can't bring themselves to trust them. And they perish. All the while, there's safety near at hand. The Lord is near. You must take Him at His word. There must come a time where you trust Him to be your Lord and Savior. You cannot be neutral. You stay in the burning house and you'll perish. Do you feel your need of His saving grace? If you'll cry to Him for salvation, He will hear you and He'll save you. What we, have the, we have His Word here, don't we? This poor man cried and the Lord delivered him. How could we put a price tag on all of our Lord's provisions? There's, there's no way. You couldn't add all this up. It, doesn't, it won't go on a spreadsheet. Verse 9, there is no want... To them, no lack to them that fear him. The hymn writer declares them probably what is my favorite hymn. Hast thou not seen how all thy desires have been granted in what he ordaineth? We look there in verse 10. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. And I'll close tonight this prayer meeting. We're about to move into a time of prayer. What is your need today? Is it salvation? The Savior's at hand. So you have a Savior, you can be saved. Is it sin? He can deal with sin. Is it Satan's lies? His truth will set you free. Is it some great need of the heart or soul or mind? The, the, the eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. His, eyes are, his ear is listening to your cry. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusts in Him. He alone can save. We see there in verse 19, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivered them out of them all. I have that verse underlined and read in my Bible, and I went back and circled the all, because I like what it says. The Bible tells us in verse 22, The Lord redeemeth the soul of His servants. And none of them, not one of them, that trust in him shall be left desolate. Well, listen to the voice of experience. David found this out, didn't he? The hard way. And some of you may have as well, but to you others, I would say, you don't have to to act the fool. You don't have to scheme. You don't have to, to do what David did to find out these truths. You can read them and take them to your heart. And God will seal them to your heart and mind tonight. May the Lord bless his word.